Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. As we move forward, we are obviously with Josh McDowell here sharing with us today, and we want to talk about now, move this forward, because we've gone through the deity of Christ, not only the prophecies, just so many amazing, amazing things are just impossible without God intervening, without He being the one who wrote these words down, these ones who do not come back void, because He tells the end from the beginning. We have a very, very awesome God who gives us evidence. And one of the great things about the Christian faith is that, and a lot of people say, whoa, when you say it, but is that it's falsifiable. And I believe a lot of it comes when when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what I would love is, in the same manner you've given the deity of Christ, some evidences for believing in it, is that maybe the best evidences we have for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How much time do I have? You got about 30 minutes, just under 30 minutes. Oh, wow. That'd be a long mic take. No. 25, actually. I just got correct. I like what you said. Very <laughs> few people understand one of the things that you just said, that Christianity, if it's false, is falsifiable. If it is false, you can prove that it's false. I've done over 250 debates in universities all over the world. And almost always with my opponent, I would say to them, look, you want to destroy me. You want to refute me. You want to destroy Christianity. There's all you have to do is just one little thing. That's all you have to do is refute the resurrection. If you can show historically the resurrection never happened, all Christianity folds because it's based upon the resurrection. For example, Paul said, if there is no resurrection, no resurrection, no one is raised from the dead, not even Christ then your faith is in vain. He later said, if Christ be not raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. And so I knew as a non-believer, if I could show that Jesus Christ never claimed to be God, my case was one. Well, I couldn't do that. I found out I was the ignorant one. So then second all, if I could prove there was no evidence in any way to indicate that he was the son of God, that it was true what he said. And so I set out to do that, and I just shared part of that with the messianic prophecies fulfilled in Christ. I tried everything I could to refute that. I did not want to believe Jesus did not play a place in my future at all. And so I struggled with it. But then I had to deal with the resurrection. And I really thought this would be easy. Why? Look, my worldview told me when people die, they're dead. And when people are dead, they stay dead. And when they're buried, they stay buried. And so when they started to tell me that on the third day, Christ was raised from the dead, uh, I just kind of mocked them. 
until they challenged me to examine it intellectually. And so I did. And this is one thing we need to understand about the resurrection. It's what you call a time-space-dimension event. See, what do you mean, time-space? It's history as we know it today. It's not something that happened outside of the earth in the spiritual realm or anything like that. It happened within history. If you'd had a watch back then, it would have been clicking off. If you would have had your hand run down over the cross, you'd probably gotten a sliver. It was time as we know it today, and it was space as we know it today. So I had to show that it did not happen in time-space dimension history. In other words, it never happened historically. <laughs> then I, I, I remember reading this, and I said, uh-oh, this might be a greater challenge than I thought. With Dr. Simone Greenleaf, the man who put Harvard Law School on the map, he wrote the three great volumes on the laws of legal evidence that were used in the courts for years to determine the reliability of evidence in a case. And he was challenged in his law classes to take his volume of evidence for the reliability of testimony and to apply it to the resurrection. He kind of laughed it off but the students wouldn't give up. So finally he had to, or he was going to lose face. Well, in the process, he became a believer, Dr. Simone Greenleaf. And this is what he said. The resurrection of Christ is one of the best supported events in history, according to the laws of legal evidence administered in the courts of justice. And following his own book on the reliability of evidence, it persuaded him that the evidence for the resurrection was authentic and reliable. I went, whoa, with a man like that, that's going to be a challenge. So we had to see that Christ was crucified. Many died before they were even crucified. They died from the whipping. The whip was a short-handled whip with 8, 9, 10, 11 strips of leather going out at different lengths and at the end of the leather it was shredded a little bit and they would tie in either broken glass or bone that was really had sharp edges to it or they'd make small lead balls with very sharp points coming out and they would weave this into the end of each one of the strips and each strip was a different distance why if they were all the same length they would hit the body they would bundle up and only one or two would hit the body and so they did them at different lengths. So when they hit the body, all of them hit simultaneously. And then they would yank it down their back, often over their buttocks, down in the back of their legs. And the description was that many times the back was open through the stripping of the skin off of it, where you could see the spinal cord and internal organs. And they said that many died just from the whipping before they were even put on the cross. Cicero said, the crucifixion was the most cruel and hideous of torture. Will Durant, most people know Will Durant, the famous historian, he said, even the Romans pitied the victims. In fact, do you know the pain was so great 
in crucifixion, starting with a whipping, that there wasn't a word to describe it. Can you imagine? There wasn't a word that could describe such horrible pain. And so they created a word for the dictionary called excruciating, meaning pain out of the cross to describe. It was that horrible, uh, the pain. And then they nailed his hands and his feet against the cross. For years, people like J.W. Hewitt of Harvard uh, University said crucifixion by use of nails was considered legend legendary. Uh, it was false and misleading. He and many other scholars said nobody was ever crucified with nails. Their hands were tied to the cross. And then in 19... Oh, boy. Hmm. Seems like 1964. I might be wrong on that. But Dr. Beats the Ferris, an Italian archaeologist, discovered north of Jerusalem a number of tombs with 15 family members bodied, buried in them. And they found these encasements of like large, very large uh, clay jars called ossuaries, and the bones were stuck down into them. They found one of the ossuaries with the name of the man on it. His name was Johann Ben Hagagal. He was in the number four ossuary that they discovered. In there, they found his bones. They found his heel bones pierced. And they had the spike. The spikes were placed in the ossuary. All of a sudden, a dead man spoke out and confused the scholars. And then when they prepared the body, they took the spices, mixed with it, the Bible says, about 100 pounds of aromatic spices along with a gummy consistency which I believe with the gummy consistency like a cement and a hundred pounds of spices and the wrappings probably was a 117 pound encasement around the body. People say, come on, that's a lot of spices. Josh, they were expensive. That's unhistorical. A lot of people thought that until they found the burial of a man. And one was Gamaliel, the grandson of the great Jewish scholar Hillel. They used 86 pounds of spices when they buried him. When Herod was buried, it says it took 500 servants to carry the spices. Now, 100 pounds is no big deal for a great leader. And then they buried him. They said it was a solid rock tomb with an entrance about four and a half to five feet tall. That's why when the women ran to the tomb and even the men ran to the tomb, they leaned over to look in. Why? They didn't want a headache. They weren't stupid. And uh, inside there were places for three cadavers on the left, the right, and in the front. And then there was a like a small um, rock table right in the center where they placed the body to prepare it for burial. And 
the cloth could have no ornamentation on it. It could not be tied. It had to be sewn together by Jewish women. Why? Because it's it represented the continuity of the body going through eternity without any ornamentation or knots. And they would start with the feet. They start wrapping it, put the gummy consistency there with the aromatic spices, wrap up to the armpits, put the arms down, sink another piece of cloth, and wrap from below the fingers up to the neck. <coughs> and then they put a jaw strap like this to hold the mouth closed. And then they took a third piece of linen cloth and they wrapped the head, about 117 pounds in casement. Then it says, they rolled a large stone against the entrance of the door. And then in Mark says, the stone was extremely large. Now, how large was a large stone, an extremely large stone needed to cover a four and a half to five foot doorway? After I lectured at Georgia Tech, several Christian engineers were on a tour of Israel. And they remember what I said about describing the stone. So they took a type, type of stone using the time of Christ and they calculated the size needed to roll against a four and a half foot doorway. When they got back, they sent me a letter, about a five-page letter. In the last page, they put it in simple English for a non-engineer. And they put all the calculations in the first few pages. And they said, Dr. McDowell, it would have to have a minimum weight of one and a half to two tons to close a four and a half to five foot doorway. How could they, one person have rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb that weighed one and a half, two tons. And a lot of people used to mock that. Well, there's two ways. One, just because it mentions one person rolling the stone doesn't mean he didn't have 20 others. It's like I had a debate with Ahmad Didat, the Muslim apologist from Durban, South Africa. And it was in the tennis stadium there. And when I walked in the tennis stadium, here were like a thousand chairs all seated in the center. And I went, wow, that took a lot of work. Who moved these in? They said, Sada uh, Akmar Sadat. No, come on. I can't think of his name right now. Oh, anyway, said he moved the stone or the chairs. And I said, he moved all those chairs? No, it meant that he had many other people, but under his name they moved the stones in. And it's the same thing here, that there could have been 10, 15 people helping him. But the other was this. Normally, I'm not saying it was done yet on this tomb because it was a brand new tomb. Normally, this is how they moved the stone. The stone was in a circular like a large wheel. And in front of the grave, to the left, there was a small trough that would slightly elevate to the left they would place the stone in that little trough and then put a wedge there. And then the trough would go down. And on the other side of the doorway of the tomb was an embutment that it could, could uh, lodge in and seal the tomb. A little child could have rolled that stone just by pulling the wedge out. The stone would roll down and seal the tomb. And so 
there was no problem in saying that one person moved the stone. Then it says a Roman guard was placed there. A Roman guard, you see these pictures of one or two people standing around with a stone sleeping against the tomb or on the ground. That's the least likely what happened. They went and asked for a guard, and Pilate said, a guard you have, use the word custodian. A custodian you have, go make it as secure as you can. Why? Because both the Jews and Romans were afraid the disciples were going to come in, roll the stone away, and steal the body, and then proclaim everywhere that he was raised from the dead. And so both the Romans and Jews said, if that happens, we're going to have a worse problem than we had before. So they wanted to seal it. So they took a Roman custodian, which was a 16-man security unit. Each man was protect, were trained to protect six square feet against a battalion. Each man had five different weapons on them. They had these huge helmets with black and purple feathers going up because they used psychological warfare. At a distance, their enemies would say they looked like giants because of these huge helmets and then the feathers going way up. 16 of these men were placed at the tomb. Now, if it was according to how they would normally be placed there, and there's no indication it wasn't, this is what it would look like. Right in front of the stone would be a unit of four. They would be awake, standing in front, guarding it. The other 12, three units of four, would be resting or asleep in a semicircle on the ground with their heads pointing in. And then every four hours, they would wake up another unit. That unit would then stand guard, and the unit that was standing guard would rest or sleep. That way, if anyone tried to, to steal something, they had to go through the 12 and then the four before they could do it. And they were trained. Uh, better than probably almost any soldiers or guard units in history, according to the Romans. And they placed a seal on the tomb, and then they went away. The seal was two pieces of rawhide with four clay packs to hold it against the tomb, and then the center was a clay pack with a Roman insignia embedded in it. Now, that didn't make it harder to, to steal the body. The, the seal was there as an authenticating device. When the soldiers put that seal on, they were verifying that exactly what they were to protect was in that tomb. And people feared the breaking of the Roman seal. When that seal was broken, the FBI, CIA, NSA, everything of the Roman government was thrown into finding that man or men. And they were crucified upside down or burned in a fire started with their own clothes. And whenever they executed someone for failing as a guard, falling asleep, whatever, on watch, they would blow, blow trumpets all out throughout the land of Israel. Why? To remind the people of the severe discipline of the Romans. Now that was a pre-resurrection scene. At, after the resurrection, this is what happened. The women came in the tomb, and it was empty. They didn't know the guardian had been put there yet. But they knew the stone. They watched the stone being rolled against it. And they were saying, who will roll away the stone from 
the entrance of the tomb. They knew they had to find some men to help them move the stone. But they said, roll it from the entrance of the tomb, which is logical. But when they got there, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and others used some interesting verbs to describe the position of that stone. For example, one word used was the word roll to roll, kuleo, but they added a preposition, apa. In Mark 16, Mark used the word kuleo, but he added a preposition, like we often add today, to change the direction or intensify a verb. They added a preposition, ana. Ana kuleo means to roll something up a slope or an incline. And for them to use that word, there had to have been an incline coming down to the front of that tomb, and the stone looked like it had been rolled up it. And then Luke uses the word kaleo, but as the word apa, A-P-O, which means away from the sense of distance. Apa kuleo could only mean to roll one object from another object in the sense of distance. But they said when they got there, they saw it rolled away, a long ways away from not just the entrance, but the entire massive sepulcher. In fact, it was in such a position, John used the verb, Iro, A-I-R-O, which means to pick up something and carry it away. Folks, Greek is so specific for them to have used these terms. It had to be that stone had to look like it had been picked up, carried away, rolled up a slope from not just the entrance, but the entire sepulchre. And think of that, without waking the guard. Now, why would they do all that effort if they just wanted to move the stone over and steal the body? Then, if they were going to preach Christ raising the dead, and it wasn't true, where would be the last place in the face of the earth they would ever go to proclaim the resurrection if it wasn't true? Galilee? Nah. Caesarea Philippi? Nah. Syria? Nah. Where, where would you go? Jerusalem. Why? A 15-minute walk to the grave could show you that the body's still there. The last place on earth to proclaim the resurrection if it wasn't true was Jerusalem. But where did the disciples go? Right off to Jerusalem. And they proclaimed it. Where a 15 minute walk could refute it. But you know, it wasn't the empty tomb that convinced the disciples. It was his appearances. A number of appearances to the disciples, to some of them alone, a group of four others, at night, in the daytime, all different situations they appeared. But in one, Paul said, they appeared to over 500 people at one time. And he said the majority of them are alive today. You could go check it out. Paul put his entire reputation in line when he said there were 500 eyewitnesses to Christ being raised from the dead and alive. When he proclaimed that, where a 15-minute walk could refute it. Paul said, then he appeared unto me, the least likely of all. Now take 500 witnesses. 
In the court of law, one witness can send a person to prison for life. In fact, I even think in certain situations, one witness can send someone to their death. Now take 500 witnesses. Give them six minutes each testifying in the court about the resurrection. That'd be 3,000 minutes of eyewitness testimony. That would be 50 hours of people that said, for 40 days, we lived with them and ate with them after the resurrection with overwhelming evidence. Folks, I finally concluded he is risen. He is risen indeed. Have to understand, I did not want to believe. Now, I've been brief here. And one thing is, I've had to jump over a lot and keep trying to think where I am jumping over all of this because I've got enough PowerPoints to go on for three hours in the resurrection. <laughs> but I didn't want to believe. But once I said he has risen, I knew I needed to place my trust in him as Savior and Lord, and I did. And as I shared earlier, all things became new. Old things passed away. Behold, all things became new. As a prophecy said in Ezekiel, he placed a new heart within me and gave me a new spirit. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen and amen. We have been talking, obviously, with Josh McDowell. I mean, if I was ever going to ask you to talk on any subjects, deity, resurrection, and your testimony, I couldn't have asked for something better. It has been absolutely amazing. I can't wait for people to hear this and to check this out. And I want to thank you so much for joining us, Josh, on the Good Fight Radio Show and for sharing these just powerful truths with us. Now, be sure to understand, I shared so much of this from memory because I couldn't go through all my PowerPoints to get it in order. And so uh, anyone who wants all my PowerPoints, just go to josh.org forward slash resources. You can download everything free. You can download the PowerPoints. It's got probably about 8,000 PowerPoint slides of different my talks and transcribes. You can download all free at josh.org forward slash resources. Well, you guys heard it here. Go to josh.org, download those things, and you can apply those as well to uh, this episode as well as other things you can find uh, Josh as well doing and other interviews he's done. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us on the Good Fight Radio Show. God bless you guys. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.